you know, I, I think it's timely that, you know, the prime minister came out and, and said, you know, this is, this is a serious threat. And consequently, we will be increasing investment in, in the area. It's, it's something obviously that as a cybersecurity business, I welcome, but not just for, you know, for the good of my business, but I think national security for the good of the country, for the good of other businesses in Australia. Because if all of that were to continue unaddressed, you know, the effects are quite dire. Hey, everyone, this is People Building Businesses, the podcast from the team at YB Adventures. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Jason Lim, and our guest today is Oculus CEO and co-founder, Amaru Marotono. Before we talk to Amaru, I'd like to tell you a bit about YBF. We run tech innovation hubs in Melbourne and Sydney. We help startups to scale, scale-ups to succeed, and corporates to innovate. You can find out more at ybfventures.com. Omaru is an old friend of YB Adventures. He's been around for ages and spent time here uh, back in 2018 as part of the SciRise Accelerator program. We've been following him really, really closely ever since. Iculus is a cyber AI company that helps organizations to manage the security and monitoring of APIs. APIs are widely used to provision digital products and services and to allow disparate systems to work together. But while innovation in this area has grown significantly, the actual process of ensuring the security integrity of APIs is significantly lagging. And this is where Iculus steps in. They're tackling uh, this head on and they've created tools to manage this risk. Omaru has deep knowledge in cybersecurity and machine learning, so I'm keen to learn more about that and about Omaru, the person himself. He's also, I understand, uh, completed a PhD, so I should really be calling him Dr. Uh, Maru Atona. So, Omaru, doctor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, thank you. That's cool. That was a cool uh, cool introduction. I appreciate it. Yes, I'm, I'm formerly Dr. Omaru, uh, but Omaru works, you know. Omaru is a... Pretty unique identifier, so I'm cool with just Omaru. <laughs> That's awesome. So Omaru, you're, you're a bit of an enigma around YBF. We, we've known you for a long time. Uh, we've been following your progress, but we don't actually know much about your background. So uh, we understand that you grew up in Botswana in Southern Africa. Could you maybe just bring us back, dial the clock back to your early days? I'd love to learn more about where you grew up. Yeah, I, I, I grew up, I was born in Botswana in, 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 a, in a city. So in Botswana, there's two cities. Um, it's a small country just at the top of South Africa, um, mostly desert. Um, and therefore for a long time, there was nothing in Botswana. It was one of the, you know, the, 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 the last countries to get independence back in 1966. So, um, and then diamonds were discovered in Botswana. And over time, it turns out Botswana was the largest producer of, of, of diamonds, uh, globally. So I grew up, you know, in the backdrop of that diamond mining as it was taken off. Um, so I went to school in Botswana. Uh, and then when I finished high school, uh, the diamond mining company has this program where they they sponsor the top students, um, you know, in high school. So I was lucky enough to, to, to get one of those scholarships. And I was sent to Australia to, to, to study uh, software engineering. So this was back in 2005. I came to Australia, studied software engineering at La Trobe. And then, you know, the deal with those scholarships are such that 
when you finish your studies, you have to go back and, and work for that uh, company. So I returned to Botswana. I worked for, for the Diamond Mine um, as a graduate systems engineer. Um, and this was the, the, in, the, in the world's largest diamond mine. So the world's largest diamond mining operation. It was cool. It's really cool. My job was to program the the machines that you know process diamond mining. So if you think of a diamond mine where you know large haulage haulage trucks, you know, get the sand and, and the rocks, and then that sand and rocks, you know, get separated and crushed. You know, all of that all all the way until a diamond is extracted at the, at the end of the process. So my job. There's a lot of machinery that you know, loads that the raw um, rocks and, and, and mud because, you know, it gets mixed with water. The, the first process is crushing. So from crushing, from mixing with water, acidification and x-ray separation of diamond and, and, and rock, you know, my job was to program those machines. And it was, it was, it was a really cool job. I loved it. I did that for a bit. And then I returned back to Australia in, in 2010 um, to do um, a, a, an industry PhD. So an industry PhD is a PhD where an industry partner, in this case, uh, for me, it was a bank. One of the big banks in Australia had given money to a research center. And so they give the funds to a research center and then they specify the problem that they want the research to, to tackle. So the, pro, the, the, the project I, I was assigned when I did my industry PhD was to investigate uh, the feasibility of, of machine learning and AI um, into um, internet banking fraud detection. So in 2010, internet banking was still relatively new um, and the way fraud detection was being, the way fraud was being um, tackled at the time was through the use of mainly rule-based systems. Now, rule-based systems, the, the biggest disadvantage with them is they, you know, maintenance intensive. So every single time something changes, you're going to have to get in there and modify a rule, right? So if you think about how many customers a bank has and their unique, you know, way of you know, interacting with the system and, you know, there's going to be multiple rule modifications for particular individuals, for particular use cases. So it's tedious. And so machine learning at the time seemed to be, you know, a viable um, alternative to, to rule bases. So my job essentially was to develop, um, you know, machine learning approaches that we could compare to what the bank had and, and see whether there was an edge there in terms of, you know, performance in terms of accuracy. So again, very interesting project. I loved it. Um, I did that over over three years. And at the end of the three years, that's how I, I got my PhD. Um, shortly after that, I joined um, um, a financial services company, um, Computer Share. They do share registry, you know, all the back end in terms of buying shares, selling shares, you know, trading shares. I was a security analyst there for 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 uh, two two and a half years. It was, um, you know, my job was to look after the the company's networks. You know, from a security perspective, again, very interesting job. Learned a lot. It was very hands on. Uh, it's where I I like to say I got my hands dirty from from a cyber security perspective. And then after that, I joined Price Coopers. I joined PwC. 
um, uh, studying off as a, as a senior consultant, um, doing, you know, security audits, penetration testing, um, security assessments, you know, anything to do with cybersecurity, I did that. By the time I finished at PwC, I had I'd worked with, um, you know, big mining companies. I'd worked with big banks in Australia. I'd worked for, you know, the, the state police. Uh, I loved that job because there were so many things I got to do. You know, I, I got to learn a lot. Um, I had done some of PwC thought leadership, you know, publications to, to inform our customers in the market about what was happening, what we thought was coming, you know. But also doing doing that work gave me a lot of insight into, you know, the technology world, what was happening in technology, what was coming in terms of cybersecurity and, 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 and those things. And that's pretty much how the inspiration for, for, for Iculus came about. You know, I'll, I'll stop there because I kind of given you a mouthful. So I'll, I'll let you uh, chip in, Jason. That's awesome. Thank you. That's a really great comprehensive uh, background. So I, I appreciate that. Um, just before we jump into some of the nitty gritty, what inspired you to, to get into machine learning and cybersecurity? Was there a particular inspiration that you drew on to, to you know, de- dedicate your life's work towards that? Yeah, look, when I finished my first degree and returned to Africa, um, this was in two, I finished my degree in 2008 and started my job uh, in 2009. So at the time there was the GFC, right? The global financial crisis. And, and therefore there was a lot of uncertainty because particularly when there's a financial crisis, nobody buys diamonds. So, so our business was in trouble. Um, and, and therefore, you know, I could tell that it would be wise to have some kind of plan B. So I started looking around and I saw this opportunity to 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 come to Australia um with with you know with the bank and the research center. So I took that. At the time I did not know a thing about cybersecurity. I did not know a thing about machine learning. It was um, you know, it was it was a conceptual idea at the time. It was more abstract than than real. But something about it kind of intrigued me because I thought you know, if this really could work such that you train a machine to be almost as smart as a human being in, in a specific task, you know, I'd, I'd love to be able to do that. So, you know, I took took a leap of faith. Uh, I came into machine learning, novice, you know, no prior background whatsoever. But the more I immersed myself in it, the more I loved the prospect of it. So, you know, back in 2010, it was still very much like, you know, what's, what's machine learning? What's AI? But if you look at it now, you know, it's, 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 it's everywhere. It's, it's, it's impervious. It's, it's, it's almost um, agnostic to, to anything we do technologically. And I'm happy to have, you know, come into the, to the domain at the time when it was, there was not much about it known. And, and, you know, to get in and go as deep as getting a PhD, it, it's, it's really helped me to understand what's happening. And jumping to your PhD, you mentioned that uh, what you were doing was basically developing a machine learning system to replace rules-based uh, security in, or fraud detection in, in banks. Were they receptive to something like that as you were developing it? And did you find success in replacing those rule-based systems with machine learning? Yeah, absolutely. Because the, 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 the thing is, the bank wanted very good you know, analysis and assessments of if this thing works, how how better is it than than rule bases? You know, what are some of the roadblocks 
we could potentially face as an organization if we were to implement this, right? So I helped with all of that. And, you know, the, the bank was receptive to it. The bank saw value in, in, into that sort of approach. And, you know, I don't want to take the credit, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that that piece of work is what informed them to then go on and, and ramp up their efforts in, in, you know, in, in that direction. So very well received and, and, and something I'm quite proud about. That's awesome. Thank you. And um, as you moved on to places like, you know, PwC, where you've had exposure to all these different companies, how did you develop yourself into becoming a thought leader in in the field? Um, you know, was it tough to stay ahead of trends, for example? Yeah, look, it's, it's, I find that because again, with, with consulting, I had never consulted, you know, my, my previous experiences yeah. have been, you know, diamond mining in a very technical role. And then coming into a PhD where I was mostly liaising with the bank contacts, the, the fraud and security team and, and the, the, you know, the researchers at a university. And then at computer share, you know, my, my role was not client facing, it was security. So to go from that into a role where I was constantly having to talk to our customers, our clients, you know, whether it's debriefing on a, on a job or presenting a report, I, I had to learn and I had to learn fast. So I, I, I immersed myself. I love learning. I love new things. You know, there were challenges, obviously. You know, there were things I got wrong, but, you know, the learning part is what excited me. And, you know, before you know it, I was, I was starting to, to get the hang of it. I really, really love that that gig. Yeah. Did you see specific commonalities in mistakes companies were making when it comes to cybersecurity, um, and you know the management of data? Were there common common um, common weaknesses across these different companies? Yeah. Look, typically with with cyber, when I was a consultant, and I guess it's the same now, is there's the human element, right? You can have the best systems in the world. But those systems are designed to be used by a human being. Uh, and if the human being does not use them in accordance with how they're meant to be used, then you, you've got a loophole right there. So that was a big one. And then the other one is just hygiene. You know, the way technology moves so fast is such that every time a loophole gets found, a security weakness gets found, the manufacturers provide a patch, which which is meant to sort of, you know, prevent that loophole from being exploited but those patches you know they come almost monthly for for the big systems you know microsoft certainly has this monthly patch releases but you find that not every organization either has the capacity or you know takes those patches seriously to to patch monthly and to keep up with them which is how in so many cases attackers then go after that you know loophole so I would say those two at the time were, you know, the major thing. And then the other thing as well is complexity. You know, I worked with organizations that had, you know, the budget to buy every technological security tool they could. But the more you stack these things up, the more it just gets too complex such that, you know, every time there's a, there's a team change, you remember this is cybersecurity. So your specialist may find a better job elsewhere tomorrow. And when they leave, there's a gap there because they're the ones that understood how things operated and worked. So when they leave, there's a gap. And that gap, before you find somebody that, you know, can, you know, understand how it works and the complexities that are involved, you know, that 
becomes essentially a, a vulnerability. So that was another, you know, thing that I, I, I found to be quite persistent across, you know, the different organizations I, I consulted with. And did the idea of Oculus come to you while you were at PwC itself? It seems that uh, you founded Oculus around 2017. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Look, it has always been, you know, a philosophy of mine to, when I start a new job, I'd always ask myself, you know, what am I learning and, and, and to what to what end, right? So every time I do a job, every time I get a new job, I've always to- told myself that I'm doing this job so I can learn this, so I can do that, right? So whether it was the PhD, whatever, whatever it was, PhD, computer share, and, and PwC, there was always a thought at the back of my mind that, you know, with this knowledge, I, I have to be able to do something at some point, you know, such that when I started P, P, at PwC, there, was all, there had to be a trigger to say, well, now is the time. So the idea certainly came when I worked at PwC because things were starting to crystallize in terms of, you know, APIs are, are here to stay, open banking is being introduced in the UK. And at the time, Australia was considering, um, you know, going along the same path. And many countries have some kind of variation of open banking, which is essentially open digital platforms. And those things use APIs, right? So if you look at that as, a, as an avenue for a business and, 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 you know, the value proposition is, yes, this is happening, but what I'm contributing to this whole ecosystem is the ability for organizations to do this securely. You know, so I started crystallizing the thought, doing a bit of research in, in my own, you know, spare time. And then when the time was right, um, I, I, I took that plunge. For me, the, 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 the opportunity was the SciRise, you know, accelerator, because that was 50K. That was six months of, you know, just learning how to start up a business, learning how to scale it and access into, into VCs, right, into venture capital firms. And obviously you guys provided a good environment for that for that to happen. So I appreciate that as well. Thanks. Appreciate that. Uh, so for, for the people who aren't too familiar, I think I gave a small elevator pitch at the start, but could you give us your version of the elevator pitch for Oculus? <laughs> you caught me off guard because I, I never <laughs> thought I'd have to pitch. But look, Oculus essentially, um, and I don't want to sound techy here, but essentially what we do is we allow organizations to embrace API technology without increasing their risk profile. You know, simple as that. Uh, how we do that is we use uh, behavior analytics powered by machine learning to ensure that your API traffic as an organization is thoroughly screened and you're notified if there's a threat. Awesome. I think that's a lot more concise than the one I gave at the start. So <laughs> appreciate that. Um, so you founded the company in 2017 uh, with a co-founder, Solo Kambani. How did you two know each other? Uh, look, I founded the company. I, I always go to lens to explain the difference. So I founded the company. Um, Solo had been a friend. Um, Solo and I used to travel on the V-Line, right? Because he lived in God and I lived in Ballarat. So which is you know, a bit of a journey to, to get into, a bit of a commute to get into, into Melbourne. So we met on the train and every morning we would, you know, just have a chat, sit together. So I told him when I started um, Oculus, he was still employed elsewhere. Um, and then I said to him, I think it was five months in, I said, look, 
I think it's looking very likely that I might stick with this, you know, um, with Oculus. Um, and I said, if, if you ever, you know, found the the will, the, the opportunity to also try this, you know, I'd be keen to, to have you on board. So 10 months later, Solo, Solo, Solo came on board and he was our COO. Still is, awesome. by the way. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, could you go a bit into the early days of Oculus? You mentioned that Cyrise was the catalyst uh, for you to actually really take this heads on. What was the experience like in those early days? I think what a lot of people don't know is, you know, the, the way Cyrise works is you pitch an idea, uh, the idea gets assessed and, you know, there's a panel that decides, you know, there's industry industry experts that, you know, we do a bit of a speed dating and then they choose who they thought was the best team and the best idea, like in, in order. So my idea was shut down immediately and I won't even tell you what it was. It was. So I, I didn't get into Cyrus because I had an idea. I got into Cyrus because Scott, in his wisdom and vision, right, thought, you know, your idea sucks, but I'll link you up with somebody who has a better idea. So I came into Cyrus as a co-founder with somebody else. Um, and then we got to spend time in Israel, you know, just iterating on, on different things. But, you know... I, I I highly regard Scott, but at some point I started to think the pairing was not working. I was not feeling it. Um, I was not hundred percent with it. So I asked Scott if I could be excused from from that from that partnership. And you know, again in his wisdom, credit to him, he said, "Yeah, hey, look, I'm happy for you guys to split, but what are you gonna do?" And that's when the hard work started, because when he gave me the opportunity to, you know, try something else you know, do the research, make sure it's a solid idea. That's when I really went into, you know what, APIs, let's let's do a bit of research on them. So that's kind of how I, I got into Cyrus. I didn't, you know, I, I created somebody else for helping get me into Cyrus. And while I was in is when I kind of took off on my own. So so that's kind of the story. That's what not, not many people know. So, but yeah, Scott, you know, was was... I I still till today really respect the wisdom he had because he believed me when I told him that look this is not working just let me try something on my own you know I'll make sure it'll work out and you know he gave me that liberty to do that and and you know we're here today because he he believed in in my ability to to pull it off. That's awesome. And compared to the company that you initially joined Cyrus with, how did you know that Oculus? would be successful? How did you know that Eichels was the thing that you wanted to continue with? Um, I think in the early days of finding a company, it helps if there's one decision maker. This is what I I, I just feel. Uh, we were in a 50-50 arrangement where every decision has to be vetted or voted down by the other party. So essentially, if, if you disagree on a lot of things, everything is a compromise which means that, you know, on average, you're getting 50% of your vision in and the other 50% you don't necessarily agree with. And I just didn't see that working for us. So, you know, you ask how I knew that iClass would work. Because I thought if I have the ability to start something, experiment with, you know, my own thoughts, I consult a lot. And, you know, I'm not saying that I take decisions unilaterally. I consult a lot, I analyze and, 
you know, then I, I execute. So I, I just thought that my decision model was better than the one we had where we had that partnership. And I thought that the vision that I had always imagined if I go into business was a bit grander, uh, a bit more daring, a bit more ambitious than what we had in, in the previous arrangement. So that's why I knew that I couldn't stay. And what were the early days of Iculus like? What, what's involved in actually creating a company like Iculus? Ah, uh, look, man, it was it was it was it was tough. It was, it was hard slog, as you can imagine, because the early days is you you call something that's not there, and, and you talk about it as if it's there. You know, you say, you know, Iculus is a global company. You know, we're building this, or we already have this, and you know, you get people behind the scenes saying, ah. You're not global. It's one person and you're just in Melbourne. So what do you mean global? So, but I, I would do it the exact same way. I would go out and say global. I would go out and say, this is the problem we're solving for, for, for organizations. So the early days were hard from that perspective because it's an idea you're talking about and you're talking about it as if it's there. I mean, people knew that that's what you're building. It's not like just saying it's, it's here and you can use it today, right? But you know, framing it that way helps, you know, your potential customer, your potential collaborators also crystallize that thought, also perceive it the way you are sort of conceiving it, you know, because for me to know that this thing had legs, I had to talk to CISOs, I had to talk to security executives, CIOs and say, you know, this is what we're building and this is how it's going to solve your problem in your, in your companies. And Every once in a while, you'd meet somebody who gets it and say, oh, yeah, I can see how that could help. Or somebody would say, oh, let's talk when that thing you're talking about is is actually here and I can interact with it, right? So so the early days were, were lots of ups and downs. You know, you'd meet somebody who'd be good encouragement for you to keep going. And then another day you meet somebody who'd say, you left a job at PwC. <laughs> you know, what were you thinking? So, but again, it's it's that will to just plow on and, and just, you know, trust in your instincts that, you know, you understand what you've lost, but, you, you know, you're counting on, you know, where you're headed. So, yeah, early days where, where there were lots of those, you know, very down and deep days and, and quite exciting days, just thinking about the prospect of, a company. That's awesome. Thanks for that insight into that. Um, so if, if you don't mind, could you maybe go a bit deeper into API threats and API security? What's the actual risk around uh, using APIs, calling APIs? Look, the risk is APIs are going to do what technology has not done before, which is with an API, you are allowing a request to come into your data, interact with your data, or even enact uh, a service from your from your company, right? They're very, they they're innovative. They they do a lot, but this is not something we we've done before. Particularly if you look at the way APS operate. For example, with with fintech, if if I may use that example, um, typically the way that banks would interact with their customers where it was always direct. It was always you paying something with your card or withdrawing the money. With fintech, you know, we're asking the banks to say, this this third party that's going to, you know, deduct money from my account, but 
I've given them the blessing to do so. You know, I've authorized them to do so. So you all of a sudden have a third party introduced between that equation, which was typically between you and your bank, right? The bank and their customer. There's that third party now. And the complexity there is is quite enormous, you know? So that's just one of the examples where it's just going to be APIs running around doing things for a whole lot of people under the assumption that they've been authorized, right? And that's why our value proposition is, yes, it's good to have that authorization, that authentication, but it's also important to have an additional layer where we're saying, yes, these are authorized, these are authenticated, but can we also make sure that you you know they were not authorized under false pretext like if i for, for some one way or the other if i get your credentials right you know the authorization authentication mechanism are going to look at the creds user username password all of those and say yeah let's check out therefore let's let it through right but you and i know that it could be somebody else trying to do that transaction on your behalf and without your 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 blessing so that's all we're saying is, you know, it's good to have those authentication authorization controls, but it's also super important now to do a bit more screening and inspection of these APIs. And what makes it relevant now is we're seeing an increasing, almost exploding use cases of APIs all over the place. A mesh in some cases, right? There's going to be a whole host of APIs doing this for that party and then, in, you know, it, it requesting other APIs to do a bit more as part of one service. You know, it's, it's not going to be one API authorized by yourself. In some cases, a chain of APIs, chain of authorizers, which is just too complex. And therefore, you know, I think our value add is, is quite strong and very, very relevant, particularly now with open banking, open digital channels, right? So the, the threads that, you know, you, you, you were inquiring about, you know, one that comes to mind is credential theft. That's a, that's a very serious one. Uh, there's another one, account takeover, right? That's, that's another very, um, um, very serious one. And why we know this is serious is, you know, there's a company called Verizon and Verizon every year, they, they release a report that talks about data breaches and the causes of those data breaches. And for the past five, six years, if you look at those reports from, from now till maybe 2015, you'll see that, you know, authentication bypass attacks are on the rise. You'll see that credential theft is another big issue. Account takeovers, you know, and, 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 and in the context of APIs, those attacks are very, very relevant to, to, to open APIs. So, you know, hence why we're here and why we're saying, you know, we can help. And we've seen Australia face growing cyber threats over the past few months. I mean, even Scott Morrison came out the other day saying that Australia was under constant cyber threat. What's your take on that and, and the risk that the country is now facing? Mm. Look, it's not surprising that at some point technology was going to replace, you know, in this case, human spies, right? It's technology is cost effective. Technology, I guess, to an extent is quicker, um, a bit more effective than, than human spies, right? And if it goes bad, nobody dies, nobody gets detained. So I don't think it's surprising that we're seeing the, the, the in, 
increasing use of tech uh, of the use of technology to do espionage you know which is what we call cyber espionage so you know i i think it's 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 quite it's timely that you know the prime minister came out and, and said you know this is this is a serious threat and consequently we will be increasing investment in in the area it's, it's something obviously that as a cybersecurity business i welcome uh but not just for you know for the good of my business but i think national security for the good of the country for the good of other businesses in australia right because if all of that were to continue unaddressed you know the effects are quite dire and on the north investment they've mentioned that the australian government would invest about 1.35 billion into cybersecurity over the next 10 years um, that promises to create about 500 jobs do you think that's enough to combat the growing threat of cybersecurity and cyber espionage I look, I think whether it's enough or not is kind of a secondary point, right? In my opinion, at least, I think doing something, that's what matters. And, and we're seeing the government do something here, which is, it's welcome, you know. It's it's not something that you could just sit and hope and wish away, you know. It's something that you need to address head on. And I think what the government has addressed, it's, it's, it's a good step. You know, I, I definitely welcome that. Awesome. Uh, so jumping back to the topic of Iculus, uh, in 2019, you uh, joined the Austrian landing pad, which brought you to Singapore. What was the process like and how did it work out for you? Yeah, look, that's where uh, I'll, I'll bring Solo into, into the mix because I, I credit him for, because he, he fronted that landing pad program. Um, Solo was in a position where he could move to Singapore for, for three months. The landing pad is three months. So Solo completed that and, you know, his, his job in Singapore was to really look at whether, you know, we were relevant. APS security is relevant. Iculus is relevant in Singapore. And Solo came back and said, I, I think there's something in Singapore. And then what I did is I then also joined the, um, the I-71 program, which is another three-month accelerator. Again, in startups, you know, doing two accelerators is, is often frowned at. You know, it's like, ah, <laughs> what's next? Another another accelerator, you know, another 50K and you just hang in there, right? So, but I knew the criticism against doing multiple accelerators. I knew, you know, sort of the bad vibe attached to that. But, you know, when you're doing business, sometimes you got to think for you, right? For your business. And so I, I did it despite you know, some opposition. So I, after Solo came back, I then went back for three months. I was in Singapore. And that's where I think things really started to look up for us. Um, and so, yeah, you know, being in Singapore six months altogether, if you look at Solo's three months and my three months, that, that really helped us. And what was it like for you being in Singapore itself? What was the startup scene there like? And um, I guess, you know, was Singapore the right fit for your company? Yeah, look, I, I think the appetite for what we're doing is 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 justified in Singapore. You know, I, I, you know, everywhere you go, everybody's embracing new technology, and often that new technology involves APIs. You know, because of the innovative part of you know API capability, because of the way they allow that seamless customer experience. There's a thing called omni-channel, which is with APIs. It doesn't matter whether you're accessing a service from your laptop, from your mobile, whatever, right? APIs make it seamless and you 
you know, that customer experience is, is quite, it's smooth throughout. And therefore, I think off the back of that, Singapore saw a need uh, and, and a value for, for our product. So it, it was good to be there. And I have to also, you know, you know, mention Austrade for this because they organized that lending pad that, that Solo did. So quite grateful for that. We still partner with, with Austrade quite a lot, you know. I, I And, and that's, that's the thing, you know, the, the, un, the unasked question, which is, the partners, you know, your your Cyrises, your YBFs, your Austrades, they they're super helpful, and there's no way you could do what we did without those partnerships. That's fantastic, and you've also actually raised capital from a Singaporean-based investor, is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, we we, we just closed. Um, I think it's nine hundred fifty k Australian dollars from uh, from a Singapore VC cocoon. And yeah, that's off the off the back of the work we you know we did in Singapore, which is which is great. You know, for me, all that funding signaled was you know it, it, it was a it was a it was a market indication that what we're doing is relevant. That somebody else thought that what we're doing could potentially be profitable, uh, had you know legs to grow and and scale. So, you know, if if I look at that. The, the fact that we raised the money and, and to me that's all it means it means the market sees that there's value here did you celebrate after closing the investment <laughs> it took too long you know there, there were a couple of false celebrations you know there was a point we thought oh it was all done and you know uh, i said to my wife I, I need to get a drink so we can celebrate and then we got the drink and it kind of didn't go through and i said i will drink it anyway so i drank the drink <laughs> And then I think there was another second time. This time it was Solo. Solo was saying, no, I think it's happening this time. So I went off, bought champagne. And that nah, didn't happen. But when the champagne is, is chilled, you, you can't let the champagne just chill forever. So we popped it again. Uh, and then the third time it happened, I'm like, you know what? I celebrated before. So it's all good. So yeah, I celebrated a few times, but before the fact, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, so COVID-19, new world, obviously, uh, how, what's the impact of COVID-19 been on your business and how are you navigating it? Yeah, look, it's, it's been, it's been massive. You know, those two false celebrations I was telling you about COVID is, is to blame for that because we thought the investment would go through faster than it actually happened. I mean, everybody tells you that it always takes a while and I, and I got that, but COVID just made it, it, it took too long for, for, for the investors to do the due diligence, to get everything in line, to finally say, you know what, everything is signed, we're in, right? So so that's the first sort of impact that it's had. But also given that we are a small company, right, you know, both age-wise and size-wise, we, we, we get a lot done via face-to-face interactions, so the first thing COVID killed was, you know, that physical interaction. And so I, I find it harder to really put together a case and and convince particularly larger corporates via a, a video uh, interaction. I mean, it's, it's super useful. We're, we're leaning onto it now, but, you know, it does not compare with that face-to-face interaction. So COVID has, you know, it's it's been a bit of a, you know, a, 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 it's 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 slowed and dampened things down for us in in that perspective. 
uh, but also travel, right? We, you know, we, we, there's, there's a few things going for us in Singapore. Again, COVID meant we can't be in Singapore in and out as we can. So yeah, it's, it's affected us multiple ways. And I guess you're finally now an international company because you do have that Singapore and Australian footprint. And I'm guessing with the travel restrictions, it's just extremely hard to, to navigate being an international company. Uh, taking money from overseas investors, et cetera. So, yeah, no, look, yeah. it's 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 there's definitely that. Um, but the good thing is we now have a we've we've just onboarded a CTO, a chief technology officer in uh, in in Singapore. So so there is, and we also ha- uh, have an engineer in Singapore as well. So we're still we're still kicking goals. It's just that you know we we would have hoped for this to happen under different circumstances. With the amount of people working at home because of COVID-19 and obviously relying more on digital tools um, and hence, you know, requiring a need for for more APIs, do you think this presents an opportunity for your business? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely does. Um, you know, you, you said it precisely there that, you know, working from home, but also transacting a lot from home. I mean, typically, if, if you were used to going into a takeaway shop, and buying your takeaway and taking it home right now it's all about you know your your the apps that order your food and and get the food delivered to your home again that's that's api so you know we've never been more relevant than now and um as much as we don't want to be alarmist or to try to be being hype hype man um i i think the the time calls for 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 people to really organizations to really look at their apis how they're using them and just having a conversation to say you know is this sustainable long term or do we really look into boosting this apis to make sure that you know the returns are commensurate with potential risks and what does the future hold for Iculus, uh, both in the short term and in the long term? Uh, look, short term, we, we just got to get over this COVID um, um, crisis. Uh, and then long term, I, I see growth. I see us truly being global. You know, the thing I said in the, in the YBF video two years ago, you know, when it was sketchy uh it's, it's getting more and more real now and 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 i love that you know you know the ability to look back and said i said this when it was a bit you know debatable now it's kind of you know becoming real i, I love that I, I see iculus really growing i think the context now the in the environmental even covid right covid's played into what we do it's not something we wish for i mean it's, it's taking lives and, and it's it's bad whichever way you look at it but what is also highlighting is we really need to look at the way we use technology to provide services right and and really look at how secure it is and iculus is smack in the middle of that we help with that fantastic and omaru i I just have one more question for you before uh we wrap up the podcast because i'm conscious of time um you know you've been really generous with sharing your story some of the challenges uh some of the risks you've personally taken to start this company uh in your time embracing the role of being a startup CEO and a startup founder. What are some of your top learnings um, that you'd like to share to some of the listeners on this podcast? Yeah, look, I, I, the number one is, is the partnerships that I spoke about. Uh, every single thing we get, I could I could do an analysis for you if I had time, but every small win and even a major win that we've, we've had is because there's been 
you know, a silent partner on our side, you know, either introducing us to, you know, a big collaborator, introducing us to a customer or helping us, you know, have space to work at, right? Collaborations are absolutely important. Those partnerships are super critical. That's number one. Uh, number two is feedback, right? As, as a CEO, most of the time, it's I've never been CEO myself before, right? So a lot of things are new, a lot of things I have not done before. So being able to take in feedback from a range of, you know, audiences, it's also important from your team, from advisors, from every, you know, everyone that you meet, because People always have opinions and, and it's it's always important to really listen in. You know, some of them, yes, you end up not using, but, you know, do do constantly listening. You know, they call it keeping your ear to the ground. I, I find that very useful. Um, what else? And, and then finally, ecosystems, right? We, we have different ecosystems, whether it's the ecosystem of Sarai's um, former cohorts, the ecosystem of YBF, tenants, all of those things, you find collaborators there. You find companies and people who can help help you get to that next level. So that's 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 important for me because the bottom line is you, you don't know everything. You don't know everyone. You're going to need somebody to teach you a thing or two to introduce you to somebody else. So I'm all about collaborations. I'm all about partnerships. Amaru, thank you so much for your time on the podcast. Uh, if someone would like to be a customer or to invest or to learn more, did it just head on to your website? Yes, please. Uh, email me, uh, omaru at iQlus.co. And um, yeah, we, we're currently hot and, and, and I'd, I'd be keen to talk to potential investors, potential customers, because I think the problem we're solving is, is real. And I think we could be really good value for, um, for businesses out there. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Amaru. It was great to chat with you on the podcast. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it.